ever been part of church discipline? I mean, the direct object of church discipline? I have. In fact, I've been disciplined in at least the last three churches that I've been part of. Now, does that mean that I've been involved in some extreme and scandalous sin like we've been studying in 1 Corinthians 5? No. But at Timberlake Baptist Church, a parent of one of the guys in the student ministry that I shepherded expressed concern about how I talked to teens about specific sins. And after that conversation, I realized that I was being inappropriate. I stopped. At Hamilton Baptist Church, two of my fellow elders confronted me about my leadership style. They came to me privately and talked with me. And I saw clearly that in my arrogance, I was pushing people rather than leading people from the front like a shepherd. Several years ago here at Winchester Baptist Church, a core couple, one of the couples that helped to plant this church, shared with me that they regularly left my sermons feeling discouraged. And because of their conversation, I realized that I was preaching the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, but not the gospel of Christ. Now you might be thinking, yeah, but that's not really church discipline. That's just individual Christians talking to you privately about concerns and issues. Exactly. That's the ordinary, private, first step of church discipline that I have benefited from many times in my lifetime. Brothers and sisters who loved me enough to talk to me personally and privately about my sin. Church discipline is not only for extreme, scandalous cases of sin. Church discipline is a means of grace that God has given his church to help one another follow Jesus. So we've been studying 1 Corinthians now for about 14 weeks. We came upon 1 Corinthians chapter 5 two weeks ago. And as we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we looked at everything that that chapter said two weeks ago. Then last week we asked the question, what authority does the church have to exercise discipline on anyone? And now this week, in our third study of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we want to ask this question. 
is church discipline only for extreme cases like the one in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? A case where a man who claimed to be a Christian was living in an ongoing immoral relationship with his father's wife. Extreme, scandalous, public sin. Is church discipline only for extreme cases like the one in 1 Corinthians 5? And this morning I'd like to answer that from Matthew chapter 18. Jesus gives us an example of church discipline as if it's a normal part of living in a covenant community with other sinners. And my prayer as we study Matthew chapter 18 this morning is that we will all be convinced that church discipline is a means of God's grace to us to help us all follow Jesus. So take your copy of God's word, please turn to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're letting scripture speak to scripture. We're seeing a biblical theology of church discipline as it is represented in 1 Corinthians 5. We're looking at why Paul tells the church to remove this man from among you because Paul knows the teaching of Jesus from Matthew 18. So look at Matthew 18 with me this morning. This is our sermon text for today, and we're going to be dealing with primarily verses 15 through 20. Hear now God's word, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's word. Amen. So I want to highlight four guidelines for church discipline from Jesus' teaching here. Four guidelines for church discipline from Matthew 18 and Jesus' teaching. Number one, we learn from this text that church discipline is always driven by the gospel with the goal of restoration. 
We learn that from the whole of Matthew 18. Church discipline is always driven by the gospel and with the goal of restoration. Look there in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, would you read the next phrase with me, please? You have gained your brother. See, the gospel calls us to go toward those who have sinned against us, to seek reconciliation with them, to seek restoration of that relationship. And that goes against every one of our natures, doesn't it? When somebody sins against me, my typical posture is to wait for them to come and acknowledge it. That's not the gospel, friends. The gospel is this. God, whom we sinned against with every breath of our being, God came toward us to reconcile and restore the relationship. Titus chapter 3 says this, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, but... But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works uh, done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God did not wait for us. To approach him, God sent his son on a rescue mission for us. God came toward us. And so the gospel calls every one of us to go toward those who have sinned against us to seek uh, restoration of that relationship. That's directly here in 15 through 20. But if you took time this week to read Matthew 18, you'll find out that the whole chapter is about sin and grace and forgiveness. The whole chapter, what comes before this and what comes after this. Did you ever recognize that church discipline is situated, sandwiched right in the middle of all kinds of calls to forgiveness and grace? Look before it in verse 12 through 14. The gospel calls us to do what? Go after a brother who has wandered astray in sin. Why? Because Christ, the great shepherd, came to seek and to save that which is lost. We have our call to worship this morning. A picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who goes after the one that went astray. And verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. There's a sense of urgency here. This sheep has gone astray and is in a perilous condition. So that, the gospel, calls us to go after them. 
That's love in action, friends. We go rescue our brothers and sisters when they've fallen into sin. The heart of the gospel is the heart of the shepherd who loves and seeks and rescues and then rejoices over even one sheep that has been brought back. That, that's the heart of church discipline. Because the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sin in his body on the tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. And then Peter says this. For you were straying like sheep, but have now Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Church discipline is always driven by the gospel with the goal of restoration because Christ, the great shepherd, came to seek and to save us when we strayed. And then look at after. So you have 15 through 20. You're looking there on your page. Now look what comes directly after this section, the teaching on church discipline. Peter says to Jesus, Jesus gives this example. If your brother sins against you, go go talk to him privately, go through these steps of church discipline. And then Peter, spokesman for the group, always probably, you know, saying a bit too much, I think. Uh, Peter says in verse 18, verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Like, how many times do I have to put up with my brother? Maybe he had one of the disciples in mind. Do I have to forgive him seven times? This guy's a habitual sinner against me. Am I supposed to forgive him seven times? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And that doesn't mean that you don't forgive him on number 78. That means that it's perpetual life of forgiveness. Why? Because God, through Christ, has forgiven us perpetually. So Jesus tells that famous story in Verse 21 through 35 about the king who's settling accounts with his servant. And one of the servant owes the king more than he could ever pay back in a lifetime. And, and he pleads for mercy. And, and so then the king gives him mercy and forgives his entire debt. And then that same servant goes out and finds a guy who owes him basically a hundred bucks, grabs him by the throat and says, pay me what you owe. And when that guy asks for mercy in the same words, rather than forgiving him the hundred bucks, he throws him in jail until his debt is paid. Well, the other servants saw this, were concerned about it, told the king. And did you see the end of that story? Matthew 18, verse 32, the king said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, 
His master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. And then Jesus applies this to us, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Church discipline is not punitive. It is not to punish people. Church discipline is always driven by the gospel with the goal of restoration. We go toward those who have sinned against us. We go after brothers and sisters who are straying in sin. And we forgive those who have sinned against us because God has forgiven us. And if we don't, we will face the discipline of a merciless judge. The second thing that we learn, the second guideline we learn from Matthew 18 is that Church discipline is particularly important when a person is unrepentant. Church discipline is particularly important when a person is fill in the blank. You might say involved in an extreme sin. You might say involved in a scandalous sin. If all you knew was 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But the teaching of Jesus puts the emphasis somewhere else. The teaching of Jesus is that church discipline is particularly important when a person is unrepentant in their sin. What's the particular sin that comes up in Jesus' example here in Matthew 18. Well, if your brother sins against you, we, we don't know what the sin was. Was it a financial arrangement? Did his brother steal money from him? Did his brother, uh, you know, kill his dog? Did his brother burn down his house? Did his brother make a mockery of him publicly? We have no idea what the sin was. Clearly, it's on a personal level. It's between two Christians. It doesn't seem to be as egregious or scandalous as what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But it's also clear from this text that others know about this sin because there are witnesses to it. It's not merely private. But the main issue here is not the specific sin, but the unrepentance over sin. So you might ask, well, what sin warrants church discipline? Well, all sin's wrong. All sin misrepresents Jesus. All sin leads to death and destruction of some kind. But from Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we determine that formal church discipline, is warranted when a person's sin is two things, outward and unrepentant. It's the kind of a sin that is outwardly visible, not just a sin of the heart. It's not just about maybe internal pride or internal um, 
selfishness or lust or something like that. Those are sins. Those are awful. But these sins, especially here in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, we, we understand that these are outward sins because there are witnesses involved and the public image of the Lord Jesus Christ is on the line. And then most importantly, they are sins that are held on to. Uh, uh, this person is not willing to repent. So we might ask the question, does this person refuse to be to repent when confronted? Or does this sinful action outweigh the person's profession to be a follower of Jesus? And if we do, again, like we're doing in this particular sermon, if we do sort of a, a biblical overview of church discipline, we'll notice that the New Testament calls for church discipline in other cases, and every one of these cases qualify for outward and unrepentant. For example, Galatians chapter 6. This person is trapped in sin. And Paul says that we're to love them enough to go rescue them. Listen to Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught, entrapped, enslaved, in other words, they're not willing to give this up or they can't give this up for whatever reason. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. According to Galatians chapter 6, let me ask you a question. What does it look like to bear one another's burdens? Is it praying for a particular physical illness? No. It's going after someone who's enslaved to sin, according to Galatians chapter 6. For example... Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you want, you could look there. This is a, another famous kind of iconic text on church discipline, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. What we see here is that this is someone who's living in disobedience to the clear teaching of the Bible. And so the Apostle Paul tells the church what they should do when a Christian, a person who claims to be a Christian, lives in disobedience to the Bible. What does it say? Second Thessalonians 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can feel the weightiness of this, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So in the church at Thessalonica, you had a freeloader, someone who was not willing to work, but he was bumming off of everyone else in the church. And Paul said, you need to help this brother because God calls us to work. 
So the form of church discipline here is to keep away from this brother. And what's the goal? Did you see that in verse 14 and 15? So that he will be ashamed. He'll be brought to shame. In other words, he'll recognize the sinfulness of his actions. And they're supposed to do it in such a way that you don't treat him like an enemy, but you treat him like a brother, somebody that you love and you want to restore. Church discipline is particularly important when a person is unrepentant. We could go down through, for example, Titus and one who is causing division and won't stop even when the leaders of the church approach him. One who is wandering away. James says about Christians who are losing their faith and wandering away. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul talks about what happens when your elder is the one who is in sin. He says to the church, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Elders who are involved in persistent sin must be dealt with. Why? Just to punish them? No. Always for the goal of restoration. But did you notice they're to be rebuked in front of everyone because church discipline has a corporate effect. It teaches us all. It has a sanctifying influence on everyone in the church so that we will all, quote, stand in fear of the Lord. Church discipline is particularly important when a person is unrepentant. Number three. You would not know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but from Jesus' teaching, church discipline is normally a process of escalating appeals. Normally. A process of escalating appeals. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, man, this sin was so outrageous, so egregious, so public, so scandalous that Paul says, I don't even live there. It's easy to make a judgment on this thing. You need to remove this guy from among you. No process of appeals. Remove him. And he says, why? So that he'll be saved. So that his flesh will be destroyed. So that the church will be preserved. So that the witness of the church and the gospel to the world will be protected. 
But here in Matthew 18, Jesus gives an example of church discipline that seems a little bit different. It has normally a process of escalating appeals. Note, process and escalating appeals. Now, does that mean that Jesus is right and Paul is wrong? No. That just means that all church discipline cases are very different and require a tremendous amount of wisdom. But here in particular, we take the words of Jesus in Matthew 18 that give us guidelines for the normal practice of church discipline. And and Jesus teaches us about this normal process of escalating appeals driven by love with the goal of repentance and restoration. So step number one, verse 15, you appeal privately. Appeal Privately, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Would you read the next phrase with me out loud, please? Between you and him alone. Jesus' desire is to keep this thing as private as possible, to limit the number of people as long as possible, whatever is necessary to reach the goal of repentance and restoration. We don't want to make a public issue out of personal sin. We all know that we're all sinners. We all have splinters in our own eye and logs in our own eye. We we know this. So this first step is a private, personal, heart-to-heart appeal in hopes for restoration. Keep reading. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Praise God for that. Isn't that good? Have you ever had a strained, broken relationship that you finally went and talked to that person and you gained your brother back? Isn't that beautiful? Happens in families, doesn't it? Happens between husbands and wives. Happens in church. Happens in our community. Beautiful. Step two. But if he does not listen. Step two, take one or two others along with you. I think too often we get overzealous here and we forget to read the rest of the verse. Take one or two others along with us. So we just grab two friends probably two people who are on our side, and we go and we, we talk to this person. Basically, it's just like ganging up on them, right? No, no, no. What, what's the qualification for the two others that we take along, the one or two others? That they be what? Witnesses. The reason to take one or two others is not to gang up on this person, but it's to bring evidence to show that this is not just a he said, she said. This is This is... Fact. Here's two other witnesses. We love you. We plead with you to repent of this sin. Stop this action. This is a serious matter. You're going in the wrong direction. We're bending over 
here, backwards to keep this as small and as private as possible. But this is serious. So the witnesses are involved in this situation, not just concerned about it. And that conforms to the law, Mosaic law, Deuteronomy chapter 19. So step one, appeal privately. Step two, appeal by witnesses. But verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, and this guy is entrenched, isn't he? He's not given in. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Did you know Jesus only mentions, quote, the church twice? Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. The church. Tell it to the church. Step three is an appeal by the church. Telling it to the church is getting the church involved. The local you can tell the global church, local, just like at Corinth or at Galatia or there in Galilee, the local assembly of covenant believers. Telling it to the church is getting the church involved, which by implication, not here in this text, but by natural implication, is getting the elders involved because the elders oversee the church. So they would need to be involved in this. And getting the church involved becomes a judicial process. The church is the, the, the final court of appeals here. You can see that, that they're giving this guy the benefit of the doubt. They're bringing charges. They're established by witnesses. They're asking for questions for clarification. This is due process. But the church is called to make a formal judgment and verdict about this case. Why? Because it's bad for this guy, it's bad for the church, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is on the line in this outward, unrepentant sin. This is a rescue mission driven by the gospel, full of love. And what is the goal of this last step? We're going to nail this guy. No, what's the goal? Restoration. I appreciate what Leon, Leon Morris says. The implication is that the church will try to bring him to his senses. When the offender sees that the whole group of believers opposes his behavior, surely he'll repent. But the possibility remains that he will not. In that case, he has cut himself off from the group of people who have eschewed that kind of conduct that he has followed and from which he refuses to depart. The end of verse 17, and if he refuses to listen, what's the next word? Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen, even to the church. Then the final step. Point number four. Church discipline. Always driven by the gospel. 
with the goal of restoration. Particularly important when someone who calls themselves a Christian refuses to repent. Church discipline, normally a process of escalating appeals, number four, is ultimately the church fulfilling its responsibility and authority to remove an unrepentant member for gospel purposes. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then what, Jesus? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And by doing this, verse 18 through 20, truly I say to you, do you remember the keys I gave you in Matthew 16? The keys that bind and loose? The keys we talked about last week that affirm gospel confessors through baptism and deny false gospel professors through discipline. The church exercises those keys, fulfills its responsibility, and with its authority removes this one who claims to be a Christian but lives as if they're not. This is the keys of the kingdom from Matthew chapter 16 in action, being exercised by the authorized representative of Jesus on earth, the church, being exercised in a judicial function. A claim is being made. This guy says, I'm a Christian. Evidence has been brought. Clearly, you're living an unrepentant lifestyle. This is sin. We have two or three witnesses here to say that this is outward Sin, and you won't repent of it. And the church, as the final court of appeals, is to hear this case and render a verdict. Now that is incredibly uncommon in the United States of America. Because we hold on to one little phrase, judge not lest you be judged. As if that's the end all catch all to everything. Paul 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, you're supposed to judge on the inside of the church because the name of Jesus is on the line here. So the final step of church discipline is removing a confessing member from the church because the church is no longer able to affirm that confession. When your lips say one thing and your life says another, that's incredibly confusing to the non-Christians around. And not just confusing, but damaging to the witness of the gospel. Damaging to the health of this church and damaging to your own soul because you're living in self-deception. Church discipline is a means of grace that God has given the church to help us, all of us, follow Jesus. So the final step of church discipline is still an act of love with four gospel purposes. Number one, 
to remove this person so that his soul might be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you remember that? Putting him outside the church. It's those words, it's those words from 1 Corinthians 5 that are just so haunting that show us the seriousness of the final step of church discipline. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4 again. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Not punitive, but we put him outside the church because out there, we are praying that his flesh will be destroyed and his soul will be saved. He will sense the devastating consequences of his own sin and cease and desist by repentance and faith and follow Jesus again. So remove him so that his soul might be saved. Number two, remove him so that the health of the church will be protected as long as there is one among us who refuses to repent and claims to be a brother in Christ, then that is like cancer in the church. Brothers and sisters, there is not a single person in this room who doesn't struggle with sin every single day. The, the, the definition of a Christian is not one who does not sin, but it is one who just perpetually repents over their sin. And when we stop repenting, we should stop having any confidence that we are, in fact, a Christian. Purpose number three, remove him so that the witness of the gospel will be preserved. And then finally, remove him so that God will be glorified. From Jesus' teaching, I've highlighted four guidelines for us this morning. Church discipline is always driven, always driven by the gospel with the goal of restoration. Step one, what's the goal? Restoration. Step two, what's the goal? How about step three? Final church discipline, what's the goal of that? Get rid of the guy. No. Restoration. We want his soul. Church discipline is particularly important, not just for every little sin, but when a person is unrepentant. That's what we learn from this text. Number three, church discipline is normally a process of escalating, gracious, loving, patient appeals. Finally, church discipline is ultimately the church, not the elders, not just you as an individual, but the church exercising its responsibility and authority to remove an unrepentant member for greater gospel purposes. So my prayer this morning is very simple. My prayer is that we will all be convinced that church discipline is a means of God's grace to every single one of us. 
And when we see it as a means of God's grace, listen to me, we will welcome church discipline, which means I will welcome you when you want to help me because I can't see my sin. I will welcome my wife who regularly practices church discipline on me in the very first and private stages. My pride doesn't like it. But she has been the greatest sanctifying force in my life other than the Holy Spirit of God. We will welcome brothers and sisters caring and loving us enough to not let us continue in our sin. And we will practice church discipline in our church for all of these gospel reasons. That's my prayer. Would you please pray with me? Over the past three weeks, Father, we have talked about something that is hard, sensitive, and incredibly uncommon. My prayer is that we would see church discipline the way you see church discipline, as a very normal and necessary part of living in community with sinners. And I thank you for the gospel that not only saves us from sin, but does it by exposing it, being gracious and patient to sanctify us away from our sin. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us in Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen and Amen.